Chapter Two of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dante. The history of Dante's personal and literary appeal would be an extremely interesting one. No great writer has managed to excite more opposite emotions. One thing may be especially noted as significant. Women have always been more attracted to him than men. He is, in a peculiar sense, the woman's great poet. There is a type of masculine genius which has always opposed him. Goethe cared little for him. Voltaire laughed at him. Nietzsche called him a hyena, poetizing among the tombs. The truth is, women love Dante for the precise reason that these men hate him. He makes sex the centre of everything. One need not be deceived by the fact that Dante worships purity, while Voltaire, Goethe and Nietzsche are little concerned with it. This very laudation of continence is itself an emphasis upon sex. These others would play with amorous propensities, trifle with them in their life, in their art, in their philosophy, and then that dangerous plaything laid aside would, as Machiavel puts it, assume suitable attire and return to the company of their equals, the great sages of antiquity. Now it is quite clear that this pagan attitude towards sex, this tendency to enjoy it in its place and leave it there, is one that more than anything else is irritating to woman. If, as a German thinker says, every woman is a courtesan or a mother, it is obvious that the artists and thinkers who refuse alike the beguilements of the one and the ironic tenderness of the other are not people to be loved. Dante refuses neither, and he has, further, that peculiar mixture of harsh strength and touching weakness which is so especially appealing to women. They are reluctantly overcome, not without pleasure, by his fierce authority, and they can play the little mother to his weakness. The maternal instinct is as ironical as it is tender. It smiles at the high ideals of the eccentric child it pets, but it would not have him different. What a woman does not like, whether she is mother or courtesan, is that other kind of irony, the irony of the philosopher, which undermines both her maternal feeling and her passionate caresses. Women too, even quite good women, have the stress of the sexual difference constantly before them. Indeed, it may be said that the class of women who are least sex-conscious are those who have habitually to sell themselves. It all matters so little to them. How fiercely is the interest of the most virtuous aroused when any question of a love affair is rumoured. In this sense, every woman is a born go-between. Sex is not with them a thing apart, an exciting volcanic thing liable to mad outbursts to weird perversions, but often completely forgotten. It is never completely forgotten. It is diffused. It is everywhere 
it lurks in a thousand innocent gestures and intimations the savage purity of an artemis is no real exception sex is a thing too pressing to be dallied with it is all or nothing one cannot play with fire when we make observations of this kind we do not derogate from the charm or dignity of woman it is no aspersion upon them they did not ask to have it so it is so domestic life as the european nations have evolved it is a queer compromise its restraints weigh heavily an alternate discord upon both sexes masculine depravity rebels against it and the whole modern feministic movement shakes it to the base it remains to be seen whether nature will admit of any satisfactory readjustment certainly as far as overt acts are concerned women are far purer than men it is only when we leave the sphere of outward acts and enter the sphere of cerebral undercurrents that all this is changed there the biblical story finds its proof and the daughters of eve revert to their mother this is the secret of that mania for the personal which characterizes woman's conversations she can say fine things and do fine work but both in her wit and her art one is conscious of a mind that has voluptuously welcomed or vindictively repulsed the approach of a particular invasion never of a mind that in its abstract love for the beautiful cannot even remember how it came to give birth to such thoughts it is the close psychological association between the emotion of religion and the emotion of sex which has always made woman more religious than men this is perhaps only to say that women are nearer the secret of the universe than men it may well be so man's rationalizing tendency to divorce his intelligence from his intuition may not be the precise key which opens these magic doors sanctity itself that most exquisite flower of the art of character is profoundly feminine thing the most saintly saints that is to say those who wear the indescribable distinction of their master are always pressed of a certain feminine quality sanctity is woman's ideal morality is man's the one is based upon passion and by means of love lifts up above law the other is based upon vice and the recoil from vice and has no horizon of any sort that is why the countries where the imagination is profoundly feminine like russia and france have sanctity as their ideal whereas england has its puritan morality and germany its scientific efficiency these later races ought to sit at dante's feet to learn the secret of the beatific vision that is as far beyond morality as it is outside science there are it is true certain moments when the italian poet leads us up into the cold rarefied air of that intellectual love of god 
which leaves sex, as it leaves other human feelings, infinitely behind. But this Spinozistic mood is not the natural climate of his soul. He is always ready to revert, always anxious to drag Beatrice in. Wagner's Parsifal is perhaps the most flagrant example of this ambiguous association between religion and sex. The sentimental blasphemy of that feet-washing scene is an evidence of the depth of sexual morbidity into which this voluptuous religion of pity can lead us. Oh, that figure in the white nightgown blessing his reformed harlot! It is a pity Wagner ever touched the Celtic legend. German sentimentality and Celtic romance need a hind to deal with them. It is indeed a difficult task to write of the relations between romantic love and devotional religion and to do it in the grand style. That is where Dante is so supremely great and that is why, for all his greatness, his influence upon modern arts has been so morbid and evil. The odious sensuality of the so-called pre-Raphaelite school, a sensuality drenched with holy water and perfumed with incense, has a smell of corruption about it that ought never to be associated with Dante's name. The worst of modern poets, the most affected and the most meticulous, are all anxious to seal themselves of the tribe of Dante. But they are no more like that divine poet than the flies that feed on dead Caesar are like the hero they cause to stink. Our brave Oscar understood him. Some of the most exquisite passages and intentions refer to his poetry. Was the divine comedy too clear-cut and trenchant for Walter Pater? It is strange how Dante has been left to second-rate interpreters. His illustrators, too, oh, these sentimentalists, with their Beatrices crossing the Ponte Vecchio, and their sad youths looking on. All this is an insult to sacrilege, to the proudest, most aristocratic spirit who ever dwelt on earth. Why did not Aubrey Birdsley stop that beautiful boy on the threshold, he who was the model of his ever at the might have well served for Casella, singing among the cold reeds in the white dawn. For there are scenes in Dante which have the strange, remote, perverted, archaic loveliness of certain figures on the walls of Egyptian temples or on the earliest Greek vases. Here the real artist in, in him forgets God and Beatrice and the whole hierarchy of the saints. And it is because of things of this kind that many curious people are found to be his worshippers who will never themselves pass forth to re-behold the stars. They are unwise to find Dante so bitter and theological, so platonic and devoted that they cannot open his books. They little know what ambiguous planets what dark heathen meteors move on the fringes of his great starlit road. His earthly lady, as well as his heavenly lady, may have the moon beneath her feet. 
but neither of them know as does their worshipper and lover what lies on the other side of the moon what dante leaves to us as his ultimate gift is his pride and his humility the one answers the other and both put us to shame he alone of great artists holds in his hand the true sword of the spirit for the dividing asunder of men and things there is no necessity to lay all the stress upon the division between the lover and the higher love between hell and heaven there are other distinctions in life than these and between all distinctions between all those differences which separate the fine from the base the noble from the ignoble the beautiful from the hideous the generous from the mean dante draws the pitiless sword-stroke of that eternal separation which is the most tragic thing in the world in the truest sense of tragic for so many things and so many people that must be thus cut off are among those who harrow our hearts with the deadliest attraction and are so wistful in their weakness through the mists and mephitic smoke of our confused age our age that cries out to be beyond the good when it is beneath the beautiful through the thick air of indolence masquerading as tolerance and indifference posing as sympathy flashes the scorching sword of the florentine's disdain dividing the just from the unjust the true from the false and the heroic from the commonplace what matter if this division is not our division his formula our formula it is good for us to be confronted with such disdain it brings us back once more to values and whether our values are values of taste or values of devotion what matter life becomes once more arresting the everlasting drama recovers its tone and the high liturgy of the last illusion rolls forward to its own music that angel of god who when their hearts were shaken with fear before the flame-lit walls of dis came so straight across the waters and quelled the insolence of hell with what disdain he turns away his face even from those he has come to save these messengers of god who have so superb a contempt for all created things does one not meet them sometimes even in this life as they pass us by upon their secret errands the beginning of the inferno contains the cruelest judgment upon our generation ever uttered it is so exactly adapted to the spirit of this age that hearing it one staggers as if from a stab are we not this very tribe of caitiffs who have committed the great refusal are we not these very wretches whose blind life is so base that they envy every other fate are we not those who are neither for god or for his enemies but are for themselves those who may not even take refuge in hell lest the one damned get glory of them the very terror of this 
clear-cutting sword-sweep, dividing us bone from bone, may, nay, probably will send us back to our gentle lovers of humanity, who, knowing everything, pardon everything. But one sometimes wonders whether a life all irony, all pity, all urbane interest, would not lose the savour of its taste. There is a danger, not only to our moral sense, but to our immoral sense, in that genial air of universal acceptance which has become the fashion. What if, after all, even though this universe be so poor a farce, the mad lovers and haters, the terrible prophets and artists were right. Suppose the farce had a climax, a catastrophe. One loves to repeat all is possible. But that particular possibility has little attraction. It would be indeed an anticlimax if the queer comedy we have so daintily been patronizing turned out to be a divine comedy and ourselves the point of the chest. Not that this is very likely to occur. It is more in accordance with what we know of the terrestrial stage that in the wager of faith with unfaith neither will ever discover who really won. But Dante's disdain is not confined to the winners in the cosmic dicing match. There are heroic hearts in hell who, for all their despair, still yield not nor abate a jot of their courage. Such one was that great Ghibelline chief who was lost for denying immortality. If my people fled from thy people, that more torments me than this flame. In one aspect Dante is beyond doubt the greatest poet of the world. I mean in his power of heightening the glory and the terribleness of the human race. Across the threefold kingdom of his Terza Rima passes in tragic array the whole procession of human history, and each figure there, each solitary person, whether of the blessed or of the purged, or the condemned, wears, like a garment of fire, the dreadful dignity of having been a man. The moving sword-point that flashes first upon one and then upon another, amid our dim transactions, is nothing but the angry arm of human imagination, moulding life to grander issues, creating, if not discovering, sublimer laws. In conveying the thrilling sense of the momentousness of human destiny, which beyond anything else certain historic names evoke, none can surpass him, the brief branding lines with which the enemies of God are engraved upon their monuments, more lasting than brass, seem to add glory to damnation. Who can forget how that Simonist and son of Sodom lifts his head up out of the deepest pit and makes the fig at God? Take it, God, for at thee I aim it. There is a sting of furious blasphemy in this, personal outrage that goes beyond all limits. Yet who is there but does not feel glad that the Pistonian uttered what he uttered out of hell to his maker?
Is not Newman right when he says that the heart of man does not naturally love God? But perhaps in the whole poem, nothing is more beautiful than the great role of honour of the unchristened dead, who make up the company of the noble heathen, sad but not unhappy. They walk to and fro in their pagan Hades, and occupy themselves as of old, and discourse upon philosophy and poetry and the mystery of life. Those single lines devoted to such names are unlike anything else in literature. That Caesar in armour, with ger-falcon eyes, challenges one obeisance as a great shout of his own legionnaires, while that alone by himself, the soldan, bows to the dust our Christian pride as the turbaned commander of the faithful with his ghostly crescent blade strikes past dreaming of the desert it is in touches like these surely rather than in the beatrice scenes or the devil scenes that the poet is most himself it needs perhaps a certain smouldering dramatic passion in regard to the whole spectacle of human life to do justice to such lines it needs also the mixture of disdain and humility, which is his own paramount attribute. And the same smouldering furnace of reverence characterizes Dante's use of the older literatures. No writer who has ever lived has such a dramatic sense of the great effects in style and the ritual of words. That passage, Thou art my master and my author, it is from thee I learnt the beautiful style that has done me so much honour. With its reiteration of the rhythmic syllables of honour, opens up a salutary field of aesthetic contemplation. His quotations, too, from the Psalms and from the Roman liturgy, become, by their imaginative inclusion, part of his own creative genius. That vexilla regis prudent inferni, who can hear it without the same thrill as when Napoleonic trumpets heralded the Emperor? In the presence of such moments, the whole elaboration of the Beatrice cult falls away. That romantic perversion of the sex instinct is but the psychic motive force. Once started on a splendid and terrible road, the poet forgets everything except the principle of beauty and the memory of great men. Parallel with these things is Dante's passion of reverence for the old historic places, provinces, cities, rivers and valleys of his native Italy. Even when he lifts up his voice to curse them, as he curses his own Firenze, it is but an inversion of the same mood. The cities where men dwelt then took to themselves living personalities, and Dante, who in love and hate was Italian of the Italians, was left indifferent by none of these. How strange to modern ears this thrill of recognition, when one exile, even among the dead, meets another of their common citizenship of no mean city. Of this classic patriotism, the world requires a renaissance that we may be saved from the shallowness of artificial commercial empires. 
the new internationalism is the sinister product of a generation that has grown deracinated that has lost its roots in the soil it is an anglo-germanic thing and opposed to it the proud tenacity of the latin race turns even today to what bars calls the worship of one's dead anglo-saxon industrialism teutonic organization have their world place but it is to the latin and it may be to the slav also that the human spirit must turn in these subtler hours when it cannot live by bread alone the modern international empires may obliterate local boundaries and trample on local altars in spite of them and in defiance of them the soul of an ancient race lives on its saints and its artists forged the urn of its phoenix ashes dante himself dreaming over the high virgilian prophecy of a world state under a spiritual caesar yearned to restore the pax romana to a chaotic world such a vision such an orbis terrarum at the feet of christ has no element in common with the material dominance of modern commercial empires it much more closely resembles certain utopias of the modern revolutionary and its spirit is not less latin than the traditional customs of the city-states it would include its real implication may be found in the assimilative genius of the catholic church consecrating but not effacing local altars transforming but not destroying local pieties who can deny that this formidable vision answers the deepest needs of the modern world the discovery of some planetary synthesis within the circle of which all the passionate race cults may flourish growing not less intense but more intense under the new world city this is nothing else than what the soul of earth dreaming on things to come may actually be evolving who knows if the prominence given by the war to russian thought may not incredibly hasten such a vita nuova we know that the pan-slavic dream even from the days of ivan the terrible has been of the spiritual unity and it may be remembered that it was always from beyond the alps that dante looked for the liberator who knows the great surging antipodal tides of life lash one another into foam out of chaos stars are born and it may be the madness of dream even so much so to speak of unity while creation seethes and hisses in its terrible vortex mockingly laughs the imps of irony while the saints keep their vigil man is a surprising animal by no means always bent on his own redemption sometimes bent on his own destruction and meanwhile the demons of life dance on dante may build up his great triple universe in his great triple rhyme and encase it in walls of brass but still they dance on we may tremble at the supreme poet's pride and wonder at the passion of his humility but the damned grotesques make arabesques like the wind upon the sand end of chapter two